Hello and welcome. This is Dr. Tully for History 302. Today we're talking about the 1950s, uh, television plus rock and roll. So I'll give you a second to go on to Moodle and get your PowerPoint for today. All right, there we go, the 1950s. Now, the 50s, uh, you know, we, we fought World War II. Last time we talked about World War II propaganda. Uh, if you're not familiar, World War II was won by the Americans. America won World War II along with the Allies. <clears throat> and after the war, the United States was ridiculously dominant. Pretty much all of Europe <clears throat> and Asia were very devastated by the war. It was a very destructive war. The United States, however, was dominant afterwards by any possible definition of the word. Economically, politically, militarily, the United States was the most dominant country on the face of the earth, bar none. In particular, the United States was economically stronger than it had ever been, and it's never going to be as big or as economically strong as it ever was during the 1950s, uh, primarily because of manufacturing. There was really nobody else to make goods in the world other than the United States. Why? Because of the war. The war was fought primarily in Europe and Asia, and they were devastated. Uh, Britain got bombed to hell by the, you know, by the Germans. Uh, Japan was messed over. China was messed over because Japan had invaded it. Pretty much the United States, the, the mainland of the United States, um, nothing happened during the war. I mean... Yes, Pearl Harbor happened, but Hawaii wasn't even technically a state at that time period. Uh, the mainland of the United States, nothing really happened there, so pretty much American manufacturing was able to go unimpeded. Now, because of the increase in manufacturing, uh, the price of goods go way, way down. Now, ordinarily, that might cause a little bit of economic scare or depression. In fact, that's one of the reasons why the Great Depression happens, because of the increase in manufacturing after World War I. However, unlike World War I, uh, post-World War II, there was increased demand across the world for all these goods. Um, so much manufacturing is able to increase, but the demand from across the world is very high. So because of this, the price of goods go way down, but customer, uh, sorry, workers' wages actually stay fairly high in the United States because they're supplying not just the United States, but the entirety of the world. You know, uh, England, France, you know, China, who's still our ally in this time period, all of them desperately need um, goods. All of them desperately need stuff. So now granted, by 49, China goes communist, and that's, that's not our ally anymore. It gets more contentious. But just think for the rest of the world, they need goods, and the U.S. is able to build them. As I mentioned, this is, this is pretty much the apex of American power, particularly economic power, um, it really, really impacts the entire economy. Everything of the 1950s is based upon the fact the economy is really good because we're the only country making anything. Now, because uh, the economy is doing so good after the war, the United States is so dominant, it's only natural that people are going to want to have kids. That's a very normal thing to do after you become economically stable. Um, in fact, in your own life, I mean, yes, I know there's a, you know, there's a birds and the bee thing that you do to have kids and. But, the, you know, if you want to have children, if you're, if you're trying to have children, uh, you generally do that when you're in an economically stable place, whenever you financially can support a child. And that happens greatly after World War II because of everything being so stable. This generation is called the baby boomers. Uh, baby boomers are young people who were born starting around 1946 and going into uh, the 50s. Uh, I don't know what the cutoff point is, probably late. Late 50s, early 60s is a cutoff point for baby boomers. 
Now, baby boomers are children during this time period, and they are greatly shaped by all these forces, economically, but also some of this culture. Uh, the baby boomers are still alive. Uh, a lot of them are still alive. Uh, my parents are baby boomers. Um, your grandparents are probably baby boomers. Um, they, are, they are a very large population within the United States. They're a very, um, very self-contained population, uh, very aware of their own importance, uh, very impactful, particularly in terms of culture. And so much of what goes on in the 1950s is viewed as normal for baby boomers. Uh, for instance, the economics of it. Uh, generally, the you know for for human history, particularly U.S. history, the U.S. is not not that economically powerful. I'm not saying the U.S. is economically weak, but it's not normally as powerful as it is in the 1950s. That does change with. Uh, <laughs> but if that becomes your norm for a baby boomer, that's what you think is the expectation. Now, early television is one of these new things that has really helped out by a good economy. Uh, television has helped out by a very good economy. Uh, television really grows after World War II. Um, it's called the idiot box by some. We're going to talk about that for a while. Um, it really just mushrooms after World War II because of the increase in manufacturing and also that things are cheaper. Uh, there's huge expansion across the country with this. Um, television, by the way, I should mention, it's, it's a lot older than you might think. Um, TV's very old. It's a, it's a novelty in very, very limited number, even as early as 1890s. Uh, some of the first transmissions of, of pictures were in the 1890s. Um, very limited number in the 1920s. Super limited number. Uh, there's a possibility, there's a potential for expansion in 1929 as part of some boom time of the 1920s. But the Great Depression happens. When the Great Depression happens, uh, this sort of technology, this sort of novelty, it's just still seen as too new. So something like radio or the movies, it's a little bit more established. Uh, that becomes kind of the norm. Uh, televisions are seen as way too expensive. However, once we get into the 40s, once we get into the pre-build-up to World War One, and by the way, this is, you know, this is... This is still not quite World War, sorry, pre-World War II. This is still not into World War II, but even the build-up to World War II. Uh, things are changing economically for the country after the Great Depression. Now, 1941, the Federal Communications uh, Corporation, I believe, the Federal Communications Commission, not corporation, the Federal Communications Commission, uh, adopts the first technical standards for TV sets, uh, doing things like making sure certain frequencies are around. That seems a very big step. Basically, the federal government is saying that, hey, you know, TV is, is something that has merit. It's something that we're going to be doing more in the future. We're setting the frequency standards, you know, kind of setting the standards for channels. That seems a very big deal for early on. Uh, it's also 1941 that television has its first commercial. Uh, commercials are vital for the history of television. Pretty much, they offset the cost. Y'all read about radios, uh, how radio commercials uh, really help offset the costs, really impact a lot of the early programming. Same thing with television. Once the first TV commercials start coming out, um, it really becomes more, you know, more financially viable. Um, I, I should mention pre-1941, pre-commercial -tele television, we don't really, I, I, I haven't really seen any of these television shows pre-1941. I'm sure they exist. Um, they were almost certainly, I mean, they're almost certainly lost to time. Uh, people, nobody was really recording them. Nobody thought it was very important. Um, because before 41, before 50, like, 
it's seen as way too expensive and way too limited in number. Uh, there just are not a lot of TVs. Very limited programming. What programming they had was very based around the city. Uh, for instance, in 1939, before 1939, there were only 10 vil- television stations in the entire country. Uh, pretty much all of them were based in New York. And none of them were west of the Mississippi until the 1950s. So even as until 1950. So even, you know, even early on, television is very local. It's very New York-centric. I mean, I cannot iterate how much early television is based around New York. For the longest time, it is only a something that is done in cities, large cities, very much a novelty, um, very expensive, very limited programming. Uh, you know, it's not like a full day's programming by any stretch. Most of the time, nothing is on. Uh, very, very hard for programming. Now, that changes after World War II. World War II, it gets much bigger, expansion across the country, based upon this basis of the economies being very good, manufacturing is getting cheaper. Uh, the early programming was very akin to radio. There's a lot of overlap between radio and television. A lot of your earliest television shows are adaptations of radio shows. Uh, one fairly famous one, which we're going to talk into, which is kind of interesting, is Amos and Andy. Uh, Amos and Andy was a very, very, very popular radio show. Very popular radio show about, about African Americans um, after the Great Migration. You know, Amos and Andy, you know, they, uh, I forget which one. one, one one's a bus driver, the other one kind of like comes up with schemes. There's the Kingfish, who's, who, uh, that's where Huey Long gets his nickname, the Kingfish, from. Uh, it's a very popular radio show. Does delve into racial stereotypes uh, quite a bit. I mean, it's, it's talking about African Americans in the 30s and 40s. You can, you can imagine that the radio show talks a lot about stereotypes. But what's interesting is that the radio show has white actors doing a blackface voice. Pretty much they're all white actors doing accents. But when it comes to the television show, um, in a weird amount of restraint, I suppose, for the 40s and 50s, um, they actually hire black actors to, to portray the parts. But they make the black actors sound like the white actors doing a black voice. So... There's a whole bunch of uh, stuff about race you can talk about with that, the fact that you're hiring black actors, because blackface was seen as just a, a little too far, a little too far. But, um, but the idea that you're getting black actors to act and talk in the way that white actors were to, like, emulate black people in, in, a, in you know, just a stereotypical accent in this time period. Uh, Amos and Andy is not the only one. Most of the early television shows are radio shows. Uh, some radio shows really don't make the transition, but a lot of them do. A lot of them do. A lot of your earliest TV people are some variation of a radio person. Um, it's also akin to radio in terms of advertising. Um, typically, there's only one advertiser for the entire show. If you go over one side, you're going to see, for instance, the Colgate Comedy Hour or the Buick uh, Milton Show. The Burl Show was, focused, was uh, sponsored by Buick. Um, pretty much they don't break for commercial. Like, they don't go to a different camera. It's pretty much one camera the entire time. They don't change studios. Um, they, they incorporate it into the show. Akin to how radio did sometimes, but television's a lot more blatant about it. Uh, for instance, if you go over one slide, this even applied to the news. Uh, for instance, you have the Camel News Caravan. Basically, Camel Cigarettes, uh, Camel Cigarettes, the, the cigarette company, had a news program. Uh, basically, the news was sponsored by Camel Cigarettes, and basically the newsreader would read the news, tell you the news stuff, and then he would also talk about the smooth and mild taste of Camel Cigarettes and how wonderful they are. 
Um, in this clip you have here, this is a little whole episode of the Camel News Caravan. You can watch some of it. I wouldn't recommend watching all of it, but just watch so you get to some of the commercials, like John Wayne shows up, which is kind of interesting. Um, other shows really kind of get into this idea. Now, there is talk early on that there's going to be a focus on education. Uh, there's a focus on education. They claim that, hey, we're going to be, you know, we're, we're able to show people great works of art. We're going to, like, be able to teach people. Uh, there's even talk of, like, have it, having it be used for students who, you know, may not have access to the best education or give them more instruction on weekends, this thing like that. good example of that early on is Ding Dong School. Uh, Ding Dong School, if you see right there, there's a teacher lady. Uh, she, she's, you know, it's basically supposed to be like teaching students their ABCs and their 123s, uh, done for almost like a nursery school, almost like a pre-kindergarten thing, pre-K. This idea that you're going to watch TV and they're going to teach you something. So even though this is done for educational purposes, and they really, really try to push this idea that education is going to be a thing that, you know, saves television, uh, that does not happen, <laughs> to put it mildly. Uh, stupid shows went out. That, that's the pretty much the only way to put it. It's like fairly early on, they have all these great ideas about how we're going to put you know, fine art or anything out. Uh, that does not come. Educational television, not very popular. Dumb shows went out. Uh, dumb shows were at, went out very, very, very much. Uh, this even impacts something like Ding Dong School. If you go over one slide, you're going to see basically Ding Dong School has to sell out. You can see her, you know, selling Wheaties. Like all of a sudden, it's supposed to be an educational programming, and then she starts selling Wheaties. Uh, another example of a dumb show, no offense to this show, is Super Circus. This is an interesting one. This one got its start in Chicago in the 50s. It got its start in Chicago in the 50s, very early 50s. This is theoretically children's programming. It's theoretically children's programming. It's, you know, it's, it's a circus. Basically, they, they have a couple clowns. They have the, the ringmaster. They have the, the majorette, Mary Hartline. We'll talk about her in just a second. Uh, they invite uh, various circus acts on, you know, animal acts, this sort of thing. It's theoretically for kids. Um, you know, they might have trapeze artists or tightrope walkers, and then some elephants come out, and, oh, there's a monkey on the camera. That sort of thing right there. Um, it, it's seen as children's programming. It, it's sponsored by all sorts of different companies. Uh, Three Musketeers for quite a while. Dixie Cups. Uh, Sugar Smacks is also a, a sponsor for Super Circus for the longest time. Uh, however, fairly early on, they discovered that even though the clowns and stuff are supposed to be the focus of the over one slide, you're going to notice that... Um, they start spending a lot more attention on the majorette, uh, Mary Hartline. Mary Hartline is the first sex symbol in TV history, uh, akin to how like um, Clara Bow is the first sex symbol in movie history. Uh, Mary Hartline is very much the real first like sex symbol in TV, even though it's theoretically a kids show. Um, and this is a colorized picture. She was never in color. Only black and white TV existed in this time period. Uh, she was super popular. Uh, they, you know, she she wore a short skirt. She was blonde. She was kind of you know buxom, and so all of a sudden she gets a lot more attention placed upon her. You know, uh, all of a sudden the show becomes about Mary Hartline. Um, even though it's theoretically still for kids, they really start showing her more often, uh, really placing more emphasis on her, less on the circus acts, more on uh, Mary Hartline's life. Um, you can see all the dogs there. There's there's a dog in a dress. I, I like the dog on the far right. He's kind of smiling and shaking his hand. I think it's a cute dog. The dog in the middle kind of stares at the way my corgi does, so go figure. 
Um, she sells out a lot. If you go over one slide, you're going to see that she is also, in addition to being one of the first sex symbols in TV history, probably the first sex symbol in TV history, she's also like the first heavily merchandised person in TV history. Uh, she is super merchandised. Uh, they market the crud out of her. There is so much stuff you can buy with Mary Hartline's face on it. You can see there's like a doll. You can, you can dress her up. Uh, she's on the cover of Sugar Smacks. You know, she's on the cover of it. A Canadian Drive, the Super Surface Club. If you click on the YouTube link right there, you're going to see her uh, selling Canadian Dry. Not Canadian Dry, Dixie Cups. She's selling Dixie Cups in that one. And this sort of thing where all of a sudden the, the show might start, you know, showing her legs a little bit more. No, nothing, nothing overt. I mean, it's not pornographic by any sense. But just the idea that they're, they're focusing more on her as a as a woman rather than this this is children's entertainment. Now, sadly, Mary Hartline just passed away. Um, I don't know when you're listening to this, but I'm recording this in September of 2020. She died in August of 2020. Uh, she died about I think it was like August 12th, 2020. Uh, well into her 90s, she lived a very very long life, very happy life by all accounts. Uh, but for the longest time, she was still alive. Uh, she was still alive for the longest time. The last time I taught this class, she was still alive. Um, and so she just passed away. So 2020 took somebody else from us. Very interesting. Really sets the, the course for children's television, but also the idea of like having a sex symbol, uh, even in something theoretically advertised for children. Um, the super circus model gets emulated by everybody. Um, <laughs> there are a million clown shows <laughs> Early on, pretty much every town had their own version of a clown. Uh, another one you could talk about, used to be more popular, was Bozo. Uh, Bozo the Clown theoretically starts in Chicago. Then they kind of, like, franchise it, so every town got a Bozo. But theoretically, Chicago was the original Bozo. Uh, the Super Circus model, though, other towns don't really do that. I should mention, though, all television is very local. Very, uh, very few things are seen as, like, national. Uh, it's starting to grow in the 1950s, but um, it, it's really starting, it's really going from a very small number to something more larger. Uh, quiz shows also get very popular. If you go over one slide, you're going to see 21. 21 is probably the fo- most famous quiz show during this time period. It's also the source of one of the first TV scandals. Uh, it came out that one of the contestants was giving fed answers, and he was kind of acting about it. Uh, this caused quite a scandal, because theoretically he was getting real money. And as such, they really kind of, this is one of the first real TV scandals, saying that maybe it was staged. Now, TV grows ridiculously. I can't rate that enough. In 1948, only 1% of the U.S. population has a television. By the time we get to the 60s, over 90% of the country has a television. That is exponential growth. Uh, I cannot iterate just how exponential that growth is. If you go from, like, you know, even after the war... You know, before baby, boomer, baby boomers are babies, uh, only 1% of homes get a television. But barely 10 years later, barely over 10 years later, about 90% of the house of U.S. households have a television. This is a dramatic, quick, um, quick growth. The, the only thing comparable is like the Internet in the 90s. Uh, by the early 90s, most people don't have the Internet in their house. By the end of the 90s, most people have some form of internet, usually dial-up, but something, some form of the internet in their house. Television changes everything. This changes politics, this changes entertainment, this changes society in general. So much gets changed on all these things. Uh, in politics, you have televised debates. Um, as I'm recording this, this is September the 22nd of 2020. 
I believe a week from today, I believe it's on the 28th or the 29th, we're going to have our first presidential debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. The first presidential debate was in 1960 between, televised presidential debate, I should say, was in 1960 between John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon. And a lot of the reason why uh, Kennedy won was the way he looked on television. He looked cool and calm and collected, whereas Richard Nixon looked sweaty and sick. Well, he was sick. Uh, TV is also in the house. TV is also in the house. It's It seems a much more intimate form of entertainment. Um, something you do in the house, it's easier to emulate. It's easier to do much more often. Uh, I cannot iterate. Uh, I think only the internet comes close to the television in terms of how much it dramatically changed U.S. society. Uh, before that, you probably have to go to the automobile for something that, and we didn't talk too much about the automobile in this class because it's not communication, but pop culture changes dramatically. Uh, two genres that come in the 1950s, two new genres that really get larger are the uh, the sitcom and variety hours. Uh, for instance, you have uh, various shows like, like I Love Lucy. I Love Lucy is a sitcom, theoretically a situational comedy with real people doing realistic things. Uh, this is something you didn't really have on radio. There are shows which you might recto- retroactively label as a sitcom, uh, like Burns and Allen or something like that. But uh, by and large, the TV is the one that comes up with it. You have shows like I Love Lucy, which shows, you know, uh, uh, Lucy and Ricky, you know, living, living together, having a kid. Uh, you know, they, they have their separate twin beds because they don't want to be too scandalous about it. But, you know, she's she's pregnant at one point, which implies that they did things that made you pregnant. Uh, another fairly popular one is The Honeymooners. If you go, if you go for one more... Uh, this one shows like kind of a working class, you know, two working class couples. You got uh, Jackie Gleason, uh, that you got his wife. It's pretty much the live action version of the Flintstones. Like seriously, it's it is the Flintstones with live action. That's that's who the Flintstones rip off, I should say. Situational comedy, you know, Art Collie and um, Jackie Gleason. They're the, the big stars of it. They do their whole shtick behind it. Uh, another show that's in the sitcom vein is the Dick Van Dyke Show. That comes in the '60s mainly. The Dick Van Dyke Show. Uh, this is also, this is weirdly enough about somebody who works in television, who, who ironically he works in television. Uh, Dick Van Dyke is, is, is the head, he's still around actually, as is Mary Tyler Moore who plays his wife. Uh, it's interesting because the Dick Van Dyke show is the first time that it shows women wearing pants. Uh, basically Mary Tyler Moore's like, look, uh, you know, I've, I've worked at home before, if I'm a real housewife, real housewives don't wear like dresses, they, they wear pants because there's no sense of getting dressed up if you're just going to like hang around the house. And so the idea, you know, they, they show this marriage that she's, you know, she's an equal partner, but she's also, you know, wearing pants, this sort of thing like that. Uh, another big one is the Ed Sullivan Show. This is the king of variety hours. Uh, Ed Sullivan, Ed Sullivan was, I believe he started out as like a theater critic in New York. Um, just one of those weird jobs. He, he was pretty much picked because he was seen as like an everyman. Uh, Ed Sullivan played straight man the entire show. He played the he was not the star by I mean, he was the star, but he was not the focus. If that makes sense. If you go over one side, you'll see Ed Sullivan there with uh, Frank Sinatra. Um, Ed Sullivan was picked because he's kind of an affable dude. He's seen as like um, the the ambassador to like middle class, you know, middle brow America. Basically. He is seen as the ambassador of acceptability. If Ed Sullivan puts it on his TV show, it's deemed acceptable. It's deemed okay to watch. It's deemed as something that is worthwhile, something that all Americans can have. He doesn't have anything too scandalous. He, doesn't, he keeps things very clean. 
basically kind of like a super circus showing um, showing circus acts. He would show pretty much any act, music act. Uh, he would do like segments of plays. A lot of Broadway comes through Ed Sullivan. Uh, basically, the idea on a Sunday night, you know, you'd you'd watch Ed Sullivan. Um, sometimes he'd interview the the act. Sometimes he wouldn't. Generally, he was just a presenter. Generally, he's just like, yes, I'm Ed Sullivan, and here you go. You know, I'm going to show you an act. Now, one of the acts he shows, which we're going to talk about, is rock and roll, because for the longest time, rock and roll was not viewed as acceptable for America. Because the United States' time period was a very conformist nation. There's a real emphasis placed upon conformity in the 1950s. A lot of fear about seeing, uh, being seen as different or outside the norm. The 50s really pushed this idea that you need to stay within the box, know your role, you know, do what you're supposed to do, do what society expects you to do. That's pretty much the 50s in, in a nutshell. And you see that a lot of times with television. It's very much iterating a certain type of American. Uh, for instance, for the longest time, with the exception of the Amos and Annie show, which we always talked about was kind of problematic, um, African Americans were really not seen on TV. You don't really have shows that like star African Americans in this time period. You also don't have shows that talk about um, like divorce or like people not being married. Uh, you're, you don't talk about like you know being, children being born out of wedlock. Uh, you, you pretty much really iterate this very waspy form of Americanism, uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Um, different ethnicities were generally, you know, heightened for jokes. Uh, this is something we see older with, uh, you know, older movies and TV sh- and radio. But now TV, you're seeing more of it. And particularly with the sitcom, it's supposed to be situational, but also it's supposed to be realistic. It's supposed to be something like, this is how Americans live. And so basically, in the 1950s, you're getting messages on TV of, like, this is how you were supposed to act. Now, one thing that really challenges that is rock and roll. If you go over one side, we're going to talk about rock and roll. So there's the quote-unquote official version of where rock and roll came from, and then the real version. The real version. Uh, the official version, the, 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 the whitewashed version, if you will, is basically Southern artist. Uh, they've they've uh, mixed traditional country and folk music beats with R&B as well as the blues to make a brand new genre. They're the ones who made it up. They're the ones who really push it. It's basically they listen to some like old folk music, uh, you know, old timey uh, hillbilly music. They called it some of those, you know, those bluegrass beats, and they mix it with a little bit of the R&B and blues to kind of make their own thing. White people invent it. Uh, the real story, um, the real story is that white artists got popular playing covering black artists. Uh, thanks to the expansion of records like LPs, things getting cheaper, and also with things like radio, because there's more, for, more focus on TV, radio is able to kind of uh, get a little bit more lax with who they allow on and off, um, particularly who they play on, on radio. Uh, a lot more black artists are getting the chance to perform on the radio, even if they're not necessarily allowed to perform on TV. It's getting a little bit more accessible on the radio. Also, with the radio, you don't have to be, you know, there, it's not like there's certain frequencies for certain races. Anybody can listen to anything. And so you have a lot of white people, a lot of white young people, listening to black artists and starting to cover them. So, for instance, uh, in Memphis, Memphis is, uh, Memphis is often called the largest city in Mississippi, even though it's in Tennessee. It's a delta, it's right by the delta. You have a lot of people moving from the Mississippi Delta uh, to to Memphis for various reasons, black and white. And one of these one of these guys who records is a guy by the name of Sam Phillips. He owns Sun Studios, which is in Memphis. 
Uh, he doesn't really play too much, but he records. He records black artists, and he realizes that, hey, you know, these are getting very popular with white people. But he's like, you know, there's still kind of a little bit of a taboo against being open about it. And he says a quote, quote, if I could find a white man who has the Negro sound and a Negro feel, I could make a billion dollars. And guess what? He makes way more than a billion dollars because he discovers that young man named Elvis Presley. <laughs> Elvis Presley is the first real crossover rock and roller. He is not the first rock and roller, period, though. If you go over one slide, we're going to talk about early rock and roll. There are way too many artists to name, but I'm going to try. I will freely admit this is going to be a bit lacking. However, I'm trying to give you a shorter lecture than usual because I've been going long lately. So, um, first real, I mean, there's a million different, like, old R&B, old blues. I mean, you could argue, like, somebody like B.B. King or W.C. Handy is early rock and roll. A lot of different black artists. The, the, the ones I want you to know about, for instance, is Chuck Berry. Uh, Chuck Berry is probably the most important early rock and roller. Um, he is black. He's probably the one who, inf inf who influences the most. Uh, Chuck Berry, very famous black rock and roller. Uh, probably the most famous and most important of the early ones. Same thing with Little Richard. Uh, Little Richard also just passed away himself. He just passed away like a year ago. Uh, Little Richard... Little Richard is also in this kind of milieu of a very important artist, really makes a lot of people emulate. Another one who both Chuck Berry and Little Richard have been hailed, one who doesn't get hailed as often, is Ike Turner. Uh, Ike Turner was Tina Turner's husband early on. He has since passed away. He was not a very good husband by any, uh, by any definition. He was a horrible husband to Tina, actually, for multiple reasons. However, his sound was really early rock and roll. When you talk about early rock and roll sound, you're really talking about Ike Turner. Some of the things he does with his, his bass lines, a little bit of that boogie-woogie feel you might see with somebody like Rue Richard and their piano playing. Uh, Chuck Berry with, with his guitar playing, absolutely. All these kind of come together to make the rock and roll sound. Now, if you listen to rock and roll music before, before 1954, all these guys have put out records. They're all popular primarily with African-Americans, but also you have a lot of white people listening to it and liking it and covering it. However, in 1954, the first quote-unquote rock and roll song is made, uh, Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and the Comets. Um, I don't have a clip of that one, but you probably know it. One o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, rock, five o'clock, six o'clock, yeah, that one. Um, it's hailed as the first quote-unquote rock and roll song. It's not. It's the first white rock and roll song. Um, yeah, they're like, oh yeah, it gets the name Rock and Roll from Bill Haley. No, it does not. Uh, that is definitely not <laughs> Bill Haley. Sorry, speaky chair that comes up with it. Um, Chuck Berry, Little Richard, and Ike Turner had long since before recorded stuff. Pretty much, uh, Bill Haley was viewed as the acceptable version. If that makes sense. Bill Haley was super clean. Everybody in his band is white. They don't. They're not too overly sexual. They're not overly... Um, racial with it, you know, they're, they're not black by any indication. He is hailed as like the first rock and roller, but as we said, it's problematic. Uh, somebody who has a very high, high profile from around here, from Faraday, Louisiana, is Jerry Lee Lewis. He's still alive, shockingly enough. I can't believe Jerry Lee Lewis is still alive, but uh, he is very much still alive. He hasn't performed in quite a while. Uh, God, he's got to be in his 80s now. He, he's an old fella. He gets into the mid-50s as a young kid. Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, he is very well known for his piano playing. Uh, the song you probably are familiar with is Great Balls of Fire. 
which is very much a cover of a black song. Uh, he will freely admit that. Uh, his piano playing style, you know, he would do things like, you know, step on the piano, you know, play it with his behind, light the piano on fi- fire, just do all sorts of theatrics with it, absolutely. He was a very early, very uh, well-known early rock and roller. He probably could have been one of the bigger ones, absolutely, when it comes to the 50s. Uh, kind of co- catapults into fame with uh, 1957's A Whole Lot of Shaking Going On, which is the big one. That's the one that really puts him on the map. That's in 57. Uh, he seems like he's about to really, really like break in the late 50s. Uh, seems like something really big is going to be going on. He's, he's, he's in his early 20s. He's playing at black clubs and white clubs. Uh, really seems like he could cross the divine. He's called the killer. Uh, he's called the killer. You know, Jerry Lewis, he's known as the killer. However, about a year after his first big song comes out, uh, the scandal hits. The career killer, as we call it. Uh, His career kind of comes to a crashing halt very quickly whenever it comes out that he is married. Now, that's not too scandalous. I mean, he'd been married a few times before. Uh, You know, he'd been married a couple times before. You know, he was viewed as kind of a wild guy. Uh, That's not the scandal. The scandal is two things. Number one, his new wife was 13 years old. That's bad. Uh, He was in his 20s. He was like, oh, no, 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 she's 15. She was actually 13. That's, that's, that's bad. Um, I can't believe I'm about to say even worse, but I'm about to say even worse. It's also his cousin, like not a distant cousin, first cousin once removed. Like that's the child of his cousin, like his daddy's brother's kid's kid is the person he married. Like you can't marry your cousin. That pretty much kills his career. Uh, he is very much viewed as a pariah after this. He, he does do some recordings. Um, nowhere near as big afterwards. Pretty much that pretty much destroys his career. Really makes it seem like rock and roll has very bad values. Now the next uh, the next guy who probably could have been very big is Buddy Holly. Uh, Buddy Holly is kind of a local guy. He's from Texas. He's from West Texas. He's from Lubbock, to be exact about it. Um, he's a fairly young man in this time period. Uh, he's only in his 20s as well. Um, his band, He and the Crickets, their big hit is uh, That'll Be the Day or uh, you know Peggy Sue. Those are his first big hits. Um, he, he's kind of a rising star in rock and roll. They think maybe something could come of, out of him in the later later 50s. Uh, however, right when he's starting to get big, uh, something happens on February 3rd, 1959. It's called The Day the Music Died. Uh, the Day the Music Died, basically he and uh, some other very big names in early rock and roll were all on a plane together that crashed. Uh, they were on a plane that crashed. They all died. They were all very young. I should iterate, too. I want to say Buddy Holly was like 22, 23. Uh, there's Buddy Holly with his big, thick glasses on the left. Uh, in the middle is Richie Valens, the guy who did La Bamba. And finally, on the right is the Big Bopper. Uh, the Big Bopper did Chantilly Lace. Uh, he's kind of a fun guy too. If you listen to Chantilly Lace, he's a he's a fun artist. Anyway, uh, they all die in a plane crash. This is seen as kind of tragic. This is seen as something which really, you know, shows that there could have been something with some of this music, but it ends with their deaths. But then we get to the big one, because as popular as Buddy Holly could have been. And he was a talented musician with his big, thick Coke bottle glasses, with his big, huge black glasses. Uh, there is one thing that he was not. 
which was sexy. Hate to say it, Buddy Holland, good musician, not sexy. You know who was sexy? You know who was the most popular rock and roll musician in this time period? Was Elvis. Elvis Presley, he is the biggin. He is the biggin. He is the big-time embodiment of rock and roll and kind of what's viewed as so scandalous about it. Now, a little bit about Elvis. He is born in Tupelo, Mississippi, a town in northeast, Ten- uh, in northeast Tennessee, in northeast Mississippi, that he pretty much puts on the map. Um, he was born in a two-room shack in Tupelo. You can go visit it. I visited his shack. It's not like a museum. Uh, he is rate most affiliated with Memphis. He is most affiliated with Memphis. That's where he grew up most of the time. Uh, he is exceptionally poor. Growing up, his parents were exceptionally poor. Even for poor people, they were viewed as quite poor. Um, interesting little story. Uh, my wife's mom, okay, so my mother-in-law, is also from northeast Mississippi, from right outside Tupelo. And she knew Elvis a little bit whenever they were growing up. Uh, she knew Elvis a little bit growing up. In fact, my mother-in-law's sister, so my wife's aunt, um... And Eileen, Eileen, she actually went on a date with Elvis whenever they were younger. Whenever they were teenagers, she and Elvis went on a date together. They went to the movies together. And Eileen said that Elvis was so poor that he couldn't pay for his ticket, and she actually had to pay for his movie ticket, and he promised that he'd pay her back, and that he never did. And she always gave grief, like, Elvis never paid me back. And we are like, come on, Eileen, if you just let it slide, you could have been Miss Presley, and we'd be living a lot better than we are now. <laughs> anyway, Elvis, in addition to being poor, he was also known for being quote-unquote weird. That is one thing my mother-in-law said about Elvis, that's one thing that Aunt Eileen always said about Elvis, was that he was a weird kid. He was seen as a weird kid because he was poor, and also he, uh, he hung out a lot with black people. Like He went to the black high school, sang a lot of black music. This was seen as a time whenever that was viewed as quote-unquote low class. Now, let's be real. In the poor parts of Mississippi with the sharecroppers, my mother-in-law was born a sharecropper, um, race has less to do with you the way you're treated than class, but still to embrace low class, quote-unquote, so much was seen as a bit weird. He does go to Memphis in his later teenage years, and he becomes mainly affiliated with Memphis. I mean, that's where Graceland is. He's discovered by Sam Phillips in 1954. Remember, Sam Phillips said, if I can find somebody who sings with a Negro sound, I can make a billion dollars, and he does. Elvis gets very huge very quickly. Very quickly. If you go over, uh, you'll see Elvis Presley and the King. Pretty much, uh, sorry, uh, Elvis Kesley and the King. Elvis Presley is a king. Ed Sullivan and the King. Uh, Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley is on the Ed Sullivan Show. When he's on the Ed Sullivan Show, this is pretty much his coming out party to America. Uh, He had his first really big hit, which was Hound Dog. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. Lying all the time. Um, it's seen as a very scandalous thing that he's on. You know, he's shaking his hips. The, the scandalous things about Elvis were that he, he was singing like a black person. He was singing a black sound, and he was being overtly sexual. Um, now, the fun fact about Hound Dog, I mean, if you click on the first link, you're going to see Elvis Presley do it. However, Elvis Presley does not originate this song. This is actually a cover of another song. Uh, Big Mama Thornton, Big Mama Thornton, who actually appears in my book, so I'm not going to talk too much about Big Mama Thornton, but ask me in person about class if you want to know about it. Uh, Big Mama Thornton, she is with Duke Peacock Records, which is based in Houston in this time period. Uh, She is a large woman. She is like six foot something, 300 and something. And basically, she is the one who originates Hound Dog. 
uh, basically talking about a man who's a who's a lousy lover. Like, you ain't nothing but a hound dog, you're lying, you're trying to sniff me up, but I'm not going to have it, this type of thing. Uh, very raw, growling sexuality, which you don't normally hear in any music in the 50s in this time period, let alone from a woman, but Big Mama Thornton was not your typical woman. But Elvis Presley does the cover of it. Now, to be fair to Elvis... Um, the, the guy owns P, Duke Peacock Records, uh, a guy by the name of um, Dan Roby. He does get money for Elvis, so he gets a lot of money off of Elvis doing a cover of the song. Big Mama Thornton, sadly, does not get any money from the covers of this. But still, Elvis Presley, I would say, has a very prototypical career. Uh, pretty much Elvis Presley sets the standard about what's going to be expected of rock and roll artists. Uh, for instance, he gets drafted into the Army. He gets drafted into the army, kind of at the height of his fame. Uncle Sam comes calling. Um, he goes to Germany, where pretty much he serves his two-year stint in the army. He has to get a haircut. You know, he just becomes Private Elvis Presley. Um, he also starts making Hollywood movies. You know, he does movies for quite a long time. Uh, the Elvis Presley movies, are none of which are very good, I, sh I should iterate. Uh, still, they're quite popular. Uh, well, of middling popularity. They, the first ones are very popular. Then they kind of get into B territory. Uh, kind of seen as kills his career, because like by the time we get to the 60s, he's viewed as washed up. I should mention he, too, marries somebody who's quite young. Um, he, he meets Priscilla Presley whenever she is 14. I believe they get married whenever she's a bit older. Uh, he claims that they never did anything. Even she claims they never did anything whenever they were young. They just kind of hung out. Also, he does several comeback tours. He does several comeback tours. Um, you know, He does gain weight. He does do a lot of drugs. Uh, he dies fairly young and tragically. Uh, he's only uh, 42 and he dies in 1977. Now, there is a lot of freak out about rock and roll. There's a lot of freak out about rock and roll. It's often called the devil's music. Uh, some of the same things they said against jazz music, they're now saying against rock and roll. Uh, there's a lot of concern about the racial elements of the music. You know, is it making good, quote-unquote, white children uh, bad? Is it turning them into African-Americans? Are they becoming, quote-unquote, too black? Uh, a lot of elements that it's you know, undermining uh, black, white integrity, this sort of thing. Like, you know, you're going to influence white children to be something bad. Uh, also, it becomes viewed as youth rebellion music fairly early, like shockingly early. Uh, one of the reasons is that Rock Around the Clock is used for a, um, a movie that is about, like, juvenile delinquents in a high school and so this idea that, hey, rock and roll is rebellion music, it's the, it's the music of delinquents, um, it's, the, it's the music of an ungrateful baby boomer. Even though theoretically these are people, and a lot of their teen audience is people who were born during the Great Depression, not uh, after the war. Most baby boomers were too young. Um, it's still this idea that teenagers are theoretically more rebellious, they're speaking out more, and rock and roll is their music. Uh, the, the, the greatest generation we ever called the World War II veterans, the, the quote-unquote decent Americans, uh, they organized numerous record burnings. Uh, numerous record burnings are done, kind of combat rock and roll. You don't have to look very hard to find DJs of all races, ironically enough. You even have some black backlash against rock and roll, basically saying this is bad music, uh, this is not good musicianship, this is a fad, this is garbage. Now, ironically, uh, a lot of accusations about rock and roll come to this idea that rock and roll is somehow communist, that Elvis is somehow communist. Now, I bet you're laughing right now, like, how, how could Elvis Presley be communist? He's serving in the U.S. military. All right, get ready for a huge leap of logic. You ready for it? Here it goes. Okay, 
Elvis is overtly sexual. Rock and roll is overtly sexual. Um, the morality of some of these rock and rollers is suspect. You know, Jerry Lee Lewis marries his 13-year-old cousin. El- Elvis uh, starts dating a 14-year-old girl, and they get married whenever she's 16, even though he they both claim they don't do anything physical until much later. Yeah, it's the idea that these rock and roll guys have suspect morals, and they're overtly sexual. Because of their overt sexuality and bad morals, they're clearly not Christian. All right, so that's that's the next step. Is like theoretically, you know, they're doing the devil's work by being so sexual. They're not a good Christian. They're not a good religious person. Now, you know who else is not religious people by definition? Communist. Theoretically, communism does not believe in religion. That's that's a big part of the Communist Manifesto. A big part of the Bolsheviks over in Russia is they claim there is no religion. So, by being highly sexual. You're against religion, and if you're against religion, you're a communist. That is the huge leaps of logic. They used to say that rock and roll is the devil's music, but also somehow makes communism. Now, I should iterate, it is very clear that norms are being continually challenged in this time period. Although the 1950s are very much known for being a time of conformity, it's clearly shown that things are being challenged. You know, in television, things are being challenged, even though they're also pushing conformity. You know, things like even Mary Hartford being a a sex symbol on a children's TV show. Or this idea that, you know, the sitcom is iterating some form of what it's like to be an American, and sometimes a lot more affluent than most everyday Americans. Rock and roll in particular is challenging quite a bit. You know, in terms of race and sexuality, of the role of young people, of traditional morality, this sort of thing. So ironically, television tries to push, you know, conformity, but is allowing for some subversion, and rock and roll is also allowing for some subversion. But what's highly dependent upon all this, what really is at the heart of the 50s, when when you're talking about the 50s, talking about the various scares and fears of the 50s, They're all dependent upon a baseline of it being a very good economy and relative peace abroad. Like, if the economy is good and, like, things are pretty stable, you're able to have discussions about this. Like, I I don't know if you get that. Like, if you're not, it's not the Great Depression. You're you're not really looking for escapism. Like, if if you know where your next meal is coming from, if you know that people are doing pretty well in the 50s, uh, across the board, I should say, this is not like the 20s whenever it's uh, just part of the population is doing very well and most of the people in America are not doing very well. Um, Across the board, in the United States, uh, people are doing quite well in the 50s economically. Um, All races, all, all everybody is doing well. But it's mainly because everybody across the world is doing awful because World War II happened and destroyed everything. But the relative peace abroad also allows for this. You know, this also allows for the city that, hey, the economy's good, America's not at war, and things are relatively peaceful. And that's what I want you to think about when you think about the 50s. When we start discussing this sort of thing, when you start writing your responses or whatever, um, what is it about conformity? What is it about what's going on? You know, security, safety. I, I, you know, a lot of these are the people who grew up in the Great Depression. These are the parents, quote-unquote, who are shocked about rock and roll and shocked about what's being said on TV. Uh, they just want some peace and quiet. They're the ones who also want to escape beforehand. I, I should also mention uh, Walt Disney makes money because of TV. Uh, whenever television later goes into color, Walt Disney is one of the first to really push this idea. In fact, one of the reasons why Disneyland becomes such a big hit whenever it opens, which is before color 
is because he advertises the mess out of it on TV. Like opening day, there is all sorts of stuff at Disneyland. Uh, Disney really makes a profit because of TV. So of a link to next week is, uh, sorry, of to last week, is this idea that Disney also uses TV uh, quite a bit, quite a bit. He even does original programming, which kind of affirms things like, you know, uh, Davy Crockett and Americanism. But what happens, if we're, if we're going into next week, kind of a teaser, when you start challenging things? When things start to get challenged? You know, when things are fairly stable, and you're kind of doing this, but what happens when things get a little bit more challenging? When people start pushing out against more? Next week, we're going to talk about that with the counterculture and civil rights movement. All right, and for that, this is Dr. Tully signing off. <laughs>